As we open up to Revelation chapter 21 tonight, we come to one of the most exciting chapters in the Bible. Revelation chapters 21 and 22 form a a beautiful unit together. We're only going to take chapter 21 tonight because we don't want to hurry our way through this beautiful, beautiful chapter. Let's just jump into it, verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. John opens up this chapter with the, the idea that, that he sees something new. We can say that Revelation chapter 21 begins a new section of the book of Revelation. You see, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through the end of chapter 3, you could say it's Jesus, Lord of the churches. It's where he speaks to the church. Then from chapter 4 through the end of chapter 20, Jesus is showing his power and his authority and his judgment over the nations. You could call that section Jesus the lion among the nations. But tonight, we get to see Jesus the lamb among believers in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. And the new perspective of this last section is absolutely glorious. We've seen the smoke and the pain and the heat and the judgment of the previous chapters. And now we pass into the cool, clean atmosphere of heaven. It's an entirely different perspective. Now John says that he saw in verse 1, a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The idea of a new earth and, and, and with a new atmosphere and a new sky, it's a familiar theme in the Scriptures. Many of the prophets, both in the Old and the New Testaments, spoke to this idea of a new heaven and a new earth. Let me read you Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 19. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. Or Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27, where the psalmist says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, all of them will grow old like a garment, like a cloak you will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Second Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 12, where Peter says that we should be looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, let's remember something. When it says a new heaven and a new earth, It's not speaking of the heaven where God is enthroned. We should make ourselves aware that the Bible uses the term heaven in three different senses. Indeed, in biblical terminology, they talk about three heavens. The first idea is that heaven is the blue sky, the the earth's atmosphere. On a sunny day, you look out at beautiful blue sky and say, well, look at the heavens. Then the second idea, or the second heaven, was the night sky, the starry sky. That They were wise enough to know in the ancient world that, that that was something far beyond, far distant than the blue sky. And they'd say, well, look at the glorious heavens. That's the second heaven. And the third heaven 
That's the heaven where God dwells. Friends, this new heaven and this new earth is a new first heaven and a new second heaven. It's a new blue sky and atmosphere. It's a new cosmos, but it is not a new place where God lives. That never changes. So friends, here here we have something beautiful. A new heaven and a new earth. Now, the, the ancient Greek word that's translated new here means new in character or fresh. It, it doesn't mean recent or new in time. This isn't just the next heaven or the next earth. It's a better heaven and a better earth. It replaces the old. We read at the end of verse 1 that the first earth had passed away. Well, I should let you know that there is some passionate disagreement on this issue among Bible commentators. Whether or not this is a remodel of our present earth, or whether it's genuinely a new earth and a new heaven. There are some who passionately argue that this earth will never be destroyed. Nevertheless, I disagree with them. I think that this is truly a new heavens and a new earth, not merely a remade heaven and earth. I believe we know this for many different reasons. How about Luke chapter 21, verse 33, where Jesus said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word will stand forever. Also, in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, God says prophetically that he will create a new heaven and a new earth. We just read that passage to you, Isaiah 65, For behold, I create a new heavens and new earth. Now, there's a very specific Hebrew word used there in Isaiah 65 for create a new heavens and a new earth. You know, other languages are sometimes wonderfully more precise than our own. And in the Hebrew language, they have two different words for create. One Hebrew word means to create out of existing material. It's as if you take a lump of clay and shape it into a sculpture. You'd say, well, he created a sculpture. But he didn't create it out of nothing. He created it out of clay. There is another Hebrew word, the Hebrew word bara, which means to create out of nothing. That is the Hebrew word used in Isaiah 65 when he says that God will create a new heaven and new earth. He creates it out of nothing. Friends, the new heavens and the new earth coming is not going to be a remodel. It's not going to be a fix-up job. God's going to get rid of the old and he's going to bring in the new. This is not newness just in a spiritual sense or a moral change. This is a genuine physical transformation in mind, even to the extent in verse 1 that there was no more sea. Some people say, well, why? What's the point of that? It's just God's final judgment on the surfing public. (laughs) Well, let's remember this. That to the Jewish mind, the sea was a place of separation and evil. We sort of have a romantic view in our own modern culture of the ocean. You know, we think of couples walking hand in hand down the seashore. You know, we think of a beautiful four to five foot peeling off point, you know, with just wonderful conditions and all of that. That's not how they thought in the ancient world, or at least not among the ancient Jews. Now, other cultures were much more of a seagoing people, but not the Jews. They, they were afraid, generally speaking, of the ocean. They didn't have great navies and great, you know, uh, ship things and all that. No, 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 no. They preferred to contract that out to other people. 
In the ancient Jewish mind, that the sea was a place of separation and evil, and it was unstable and, and dangerous. So it says something when it says that there's no more sea. We already remember, too, that, that the book of Revelation has shown us that when the, the, the Antichrist rises up, where does that beast arise from? From the sea. We've also seen in Revelation chapter 20 that the sea is the place of the dead. And in Isaiah chapter 57, the raging sea is identified with the heathen, with the Gentiles, with the opponents of the Lord that must be conquered. Of course, we are told that before God's throne, there is a glassy sea stretched out before the throne of God, which, if you put a swell in it, is perfect conditions. (laughs) So there may not be any uh, surf in this new heavens and new earth, but, but in the heaven where God lives, there will be a sea. And it's glassed off for that purpose. Now, let's take a look here. It doesn't just end here. We want to take a look here in verse 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them, and will be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, and there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Friends, let's remember that this is a break from the past. This is not just a continuation of the millennial earth that we saw at the end of Revelation chapter 20. No, this is past the millennial earth. This is what we usually think of as heaven. Now, when I say usually think of, I mean usually think of in a proper biblical framework. Friends, if you think heaven is going to be a place where people with wings and halos sit around on clouds playing harps, you couldn't have a more ludicrous idea of what heaven's going to be about. Once God is finished with the millennium, and once it's served its purpose, and once the great white throne judgment has taken place, and all sin, and all death, and all evil is judged and taken care of, then God says, let's get it on. Here's the city, the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven. And this is where my people are going to live with me for all of eternity. Now, you say, is there a difference between the new Jerusalem and the place where God lives, where heaven lives? I don't know. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. Maybe, you know, we'll have free access between them both. Who knows? But it describes this glorious city. You take a look in verse 2, it just says that the holy city, New Jerusalem, this is the Jerusalem of hope, the Jerusalem above, the, the place of our real citizenship. It's different from any city on this earth. It's the holy city. It's the New Jerusalem. Because it's holy and new, it's different from any earthly city. Although the name Jerusalem gives it continuity with earth. It's the New Jerusalem. And there it is coming down from heaven to earth. I think it's significant that this glorious dwelling place of God and his people is described as the holy city. Now, many people in our world today have a low view of cities. They'd much rather live out in the countryside. They'd much rather live in some sense of isolation, you know, not around many people, and just maybe you and just a few friends and family and that, not out in the city. I want you to know, friends, that, that, that cities are places where there are many people and where people interact with each other, 
Heaven is not a place of isolation. Heaven is a place of community, of perfect community of the people of God. If you don't like other Christians, you're going to have a hard time in heaven. Because the New Jerusalem is a city. It's a place of life, activity, interest, and people. How different this is from the Hindu conception of a blank nirvana. Where the world beyond you just sort of go off into this isolated nothingness. This this isolated thing where you're like in a sensory deprivation tank for all of eternity. This isn't the flight of of the alone, unto the alone. No. It's the life of the redeemed community in heaven. I want you to consider something, friends, that man has never known community unmarred by sin. Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden for a period of time without sin, but that's not community. That's one man and one woman. Mankind has never known what it is to have a community of people without the the, the marring of sin. And friends, community in a larger context only came to place after the fall. But here in the New Jerusalem, we have something totally unique, a sinless, pure community of righteousness, a holy city. Can I make a very obvious point here? We're not there yet. (laughs) A lot of problems arise when believers expect this kind of community now. When they expect perfect community among believers now. No, instead, right now, what does the Bible say? It says, be long-suffering with each other. Love one another. Forgive one another. Bear with one another. Now, friends, you're not going to have to read that when you're in the New Jerusalem. We're going to be in perfection. There's not going to be a need to forgive other people. There's not going to be a need to suffer long with other people or do any of those things. No, it's going to be a sinless, pure community of righteousness. We don't expect perfection in that community now, nor do we make the mistake of thinking that we can achieve that community. Oh, you know, if we only love the Lord together enough, well, it's going to be perfect then. No. Friends, the Apostle Paul in the churches he founded cannot build perfect community. They had difficulties amongst themselves. You read his letters, you find this out. Friends, this perfect community only comes down out of heaven. It will never be the achievement of man. It's only the gift of God. But if you want to see how beautiful it is, take a look. Right here in verse 2. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. With this, John uses the most beautiful, striking image he can think of. You know, the most beautiful thing a man will ever see is his bride coming down the aisle to him. It's a remarkable visage. Something that that every man, uh, every husband should have just burned into his memory. Well, friends, this is how John describes the coming of the new Jerusalem down to earth. John says this is how beautiful the new Jerusalem will be. And where where lies its beauty? What makes it so beautiful? Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. You see, Moses' tabernacle represented the the dwelling place of God on this earth. 
But that's the past representation of the dwelling place of God. This is the reality of his presence. Look at that passage. Look at that line where it says, He will dwell with them and they shall be his people. That succinctly states God's desire and man's purpose. What's God's desire? To live with you. To live with you. He will dwell with them. Do you realize how much time and energy and effort we and others in this world spend in trying to push God away? God says, I just want to live with you. I want to live with you. And not just like live in your house as the crazy ant up in the attic. I want to live with you. I want to talk with you. I want to love you. I want to have relationship with you. I want us to live together and have this beautiful relationship. I want to live with you. That's God's desire. And it's going to be perfectly consummated in heaven. But friends, it's not the only thing this is. It's not just God's desire. It's man's purpose. This is what God created us for. Absolutely. You will never find your purpose in life until God lives with you and you live as his child. God's desire is to live in close fellowship with man and man's purpose is to live as a people unto God. And this is the greatest glory of heaven. Friends, the the ultimate restoration of what was lost in the fall is found here. What do you think made the Garden of Eden so glorious? Do you think it was the the foliage? Do you think it was the gardening? Do you think it was the animals? No, the most glorious thing in the Garden of Eden was that the Lord God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. That was Adam's highest privilege. He had companionship with the Lord God Almighty, and here it is perfectly restored. What's more, it says the former things have passed away. The new Jerusalem is distinguished by what it does not have. No tears, no sorrow, nor death, no pain. Later on, we're going to see that the new Jerusalem has no temple, no sacrifice, no sun, no moon, no darkness, no sin, and no abomination. Friends, all that, it's gone. All the pain, all the hurt, all the suffering of this life, all the confusion, all the questions, all the bitterness, it's gone. You ever think of what the human sound is? We all know what the duck sound is. Ducks go quack, quack. We all know what the cow sound is. Cows go moo, moo. Well, what's the human sound? What do babies... (laughs) You got it right there. What are babies born doing? Crying. Mankind comes into this world crying. He leaves it groaning. And in between, there's a lot of helpless wailing. But in heaven, the hallelujahs of this renewed world and redeemed man, it's going to drown out all of that. It's going to be a distant memory. It says there, do you see it there? God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In verse 4, it's beautiful. Every tear. There's a lot of tears in this life. There's a lot of tears in the Bible. You have the tears of bereaved affection, of a loved one lost. That's the tears of Mary and Martha. That's the tears of the widow, the tears of the widow of Nain. You have tears of sympathy and mercy, such as when Jeremiah and Jesus wept over Jerusalem and the judgment coming upon it. You have tears of persecuted innocent, tears of contrition and penitence for sins. You have tears of disappointment and neglect. You have tears of yearning for for what can't be ours now. 
whatever tears they are, whatever tears have streaked down the cheeks of mortals, they're all going to be wiped away. Friends, you understand that that's not now. It's then. I want you to weigh in the balance for a moment here. Maybe you feel like a very old person. Sometimes I do. You feel like, oh man, I've been around a long time. You think, well, you know, if you take the charts and the life insurance tables or anything, I'm going to be around a lot more. Ah, this is a long life. Well, measure your life compared to eternity. How does it measure? It's just a blink. It's a vapor. It's like a little puff of smoke compared to eternity. So God allots the time for tears with just a puff of smoke. The time for no more tears? Well, that's all of eternity. Isn't God good? Doesn't he love us so much? And then look at here, verse 5. Friends, this is it. This is like a summit peak. Verses 5 and 6 is so glorious. Let's start with 5. It says, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these things are true and faithful. This is an authoritative announcement. It comes from the throne itself, and the voice echoes out across the new Jerusalem, and it says, Behold, I make all things new. Actually, in the ancient Greek grammar, it's in the present tense. I am making everything new. I started the work back then. Now it's consummated. God's making everything new right now. He started it now. Friends, eternal life doesn't start when you die. It should be in your heart right now. Heaven's kind of life, eternity's kind of life. It's right here, right now. Paul saw this transformation at work on this side of eternity. He said, therefore, we do not lose heart Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. He said that we're a new creation in Christ, right? That work began back there, but friends, now, now it's completed. All things are new. This is a brief glance at the thinking behind God's eternal plan. Friends, God has allowed sin, and God has allowed all the destruction that sin brings in order to do a greater work of making all things new. He could never say all things are new unless they got old to begin with. And at this point in his plan of the ages, the plan is complete. All things are new. Friends, listen carefully to this. This is going to be a very new idea for some of you. You see, our instinct is to romantically consider man's highest state, the ideal state of mankind, to be innocence. We say, I wish Adam and Eve would have never done what they did. Why didn't somebody stop them? Why didn't an angel knock the apple out of his hand, assuming that it was an apple? You get the idea, right? We think that this is is the highest state, the greatest good is innocence. Friends, when we think that way, we fail to grasp the truth of the Scriptures that redeemed man is greater than innocent man. Ladies and gentlemen, in Jesus Christ, you are greater than Adam was before the fall. You have a positive righteousness. You have a positive access to God. You you have things and and gifts and, and beautiful blessings from the Lord God by His great grace that Adam never had. God's perfect state is not innocence, it's redemption. 
So friends, when God finally completes this work of making all things new, it's going to stay new. It's never going to go downhill again. Now this blew John away so much. I mean, I think of him here, he's got the little quill in his hand. He's just saying his mouth is open. Says, I can't, look at what God has to say in verse 5. Right, for these words are true and faithful. John, look, get busy. Right, you put the pen down, get, get busy. Now look here, here verse 6. Oh. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Friends, do you see it? It is done. What a beautiful proclamation there at the beginning of verse 6. God's eternal purpose in Jesus is now fulfilled. It's accomplished. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, God says that His eternal plan was that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, that He would gather together in one all things in Christ. Both things that are in heaven and things that are on earth. At this point, all things have been resolved. All things have been summed up in Jesus. It's done. Listen, everything else from this point on in the book of Revelation, this is the appendix. These are the footnotes. But it's done. God had a plan that he implemented before the worlds were even created. And now that plan is perfectly fulfilled. Perfectly fulfilled. Through that plan, God has taught wonderful lessons. To us, to the angels. Do you realize that that's part of what God is working out right now? He's teaching the angels through you. Your Christian life is an object lesson to the angels. I imagine in my mind that some of us are an object lesson of goodness and faithfulness. And some of us are an object lesson of God saying, now that's not how it's supposed to be done. Nonetheless, you're an object lesson to the angels, friends. God has a plan much, much bigger than we can conceive of. And friends, when, when it's all done, he'll say, it is done. Notice the invitation there in verse 6. He says, I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. Isn't it beautiful in the scriptures how drinking and thirst are common pictures of man's need and God's supply? Drinking is an action. You have to do something to drink. But it's just an action of receiving. You don't have to do much, but you have to do something. It's like faith. Faith is doing something, but it's not a merit-earning work in itself. You don't say, wow, look at how he drank that glass of water. No, you realize that it's all in the water. It's not in the drinking. Friends, what does a thirsty man do to get rid of his thirst? He drinks well, that's what faith is like. To drink is to receive. You, you just take it in, and that's what faith is. You know, you don't have to have your face washed to drink. You can be an unworthy character, but drink. The water will still remove your thirst. And friends, drinking is such a remarkable, easier thing. Well, what's harder? Eating or drinking? Well, eating's harder. You've got to chew to eat. 
Friends, drinking is so easy. God says, come. You just receive what I give. And I'll work this in you. I'll fill you. I'll bless you. Look at this promise here in verse 7. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God. And he shall be my son. Is there a better blessing than that? The closeness of that relationship with God. The intimacy of that communion. Now, not everybody is in that place. If you notice, it says the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, they'll have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Cowardice is enough to send a person to hell. No, not that natural timidity, but the cowardice which in the last resort chooses self and safety instead of Jesus Christ. And all these other things, friends. Those are the sins which drag men and women down to hell. Look at it now, verse 9. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls filled with the last seven plagues, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I'll show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Now, passages like this make some people wonder if the new Jerusalem is a literal place at all. Some suggest that really it's just a very exotic symbol of the church, the bride of Christ. He says, I'll show you the bride. And then he says, and then he saw the great city, the holy Jerusalem. Well, friends, I believe that the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, is literal. But it's called the bride, the lamb's wife, because it's the place where all God's people are gathered. And in this sense, certainly the new Jerusalem is like the bride. But the association doesn't diminish the reality behind the image. The city is associated with the bride to awe us with its sense of beauty. If you want to get a better picture, look at it here, verse 11. Having the glory of God and her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south and three gates on the west. Now, the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. John is first struck by the tremendous glory of this city. She shares in the glory of God, and it's expressed in the radiant light that shines forth from her. But she has a wall. Now, the wall isn't needed for defense. It's not like there's, you know, armies from hell crashing against this city, trying to overthrow it. No, it's nonsense. There are no more enemies. But the great and high wall gives us perimeters. This isn't some kind of cosmic nirvana. And it shows us that some people will be excluded from the city. Not everyone can enter, only the righteous. Then it has 12 gates and names written on them, which are the 12 names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Friends, this communicates that the gates show us the the, the unity and the continuity that God's people have with Israel. God will never forget the tribes of Israel, even unto all of eternity. And friends, I think it's also significant that verse 14 tells us that the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. 
You see, the foundations are an eternal testimony to the apostles and to their permanent place in God's plan. If it isn't built on the foundation of the apostles, it isn't the right place for God's people. And friends, I think we need to understand something. That there are not unlimited foundations here. There's 12. 12 foundations. And this shows us something about apostolic ministry. That there is an apostolic office which was reserved for 12 alone. It's not unlimited. There were 12 alone. 12 apostles of the Lamb. That's it. And friends, it's not an unlimited office. In my mind, these are the apostles with a capital A. These are the ones who had the wonderful authority and used of God to either write directly or to supervise or commission the writings of the New Testament. And this is glorious. Now, if you want to take the word apostle in just what it means, it means an ambassador, someone who's commissioned as a representative. Well, certainly we say God has had his precious ambassadors in the church today and in times historical. But you could say those are apostles with a little a. There's nobody today who's going to get their name on one of these foundations. There's nobody today who has the authority to write the scriptures. So are there apostles today? Yes, in a sense but not in the sense that these 12 apostles of the Lamb were. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, tells us that the church of Jesus Christ is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Well, friends, once it's built on that foundation, you don't need another foundation. You know, a house can need a couple of roofs, can need new walls, can need new drywall, can need new paint, doesn't need new foundations. The foundations remain. Some people think that maybe we're cheated because of this. We're cheated because, well, you know, we don't live in the days of the 12 apostles. We don't have Peter or, or, or Paul or, or John or, or any of those guys. Well, where are they? Well, friends, here's an interesting question for you here. If, if there was an apostle with a capital A today, I know exactly what he would teach. What's right in here. That's it. Friends, you have better than the apostles. You have their teaching right here. You have the voice and the testimony of the apostles. And I mean the apostles with a capital A. Right here. It's right here in front of you. You have the foundation that they laid right in front of you. Now, we thank God for what he does in apostles and whatever they may do in a modern sense. Apostles with a small A. Friends, let's let's go there and see the 12 names on the 12 foundations in the New Jerusalem. Verse 15 talks to us about the dimensions of the city. It says, And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its wall. And the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed. 12,000 furlongs, its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall. 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. Now, I think this is very interesting. First of all, The city is laid out as a square. The New Jerusalem's length, height, and width are equal. As far as I know from geometry, this means that it's one of two shapes. It's either a cube or it could be a pyramid. A pyramid has height, length, and width all equal as well. Uh, Friends, the 
Uh, If you pressed me on it, which one it would be, I'd say it's a cube. Because an equidistant cube is the same dimensions or the same pattern as the holy place of the tabernacle. That's what that was. It was a cube 15 feet square. Now, this is bigger than 15 feet square. This is uh, 12,000 furlongs, which is about 1,500 miles. Friends, this is a city that goes from Maine to Florida. Square. This is a city that has about the same size as the moon has. This is a huge city. It's too big for the imagination. Don't we understand that there's plenty of room for everybody here? Henry Morris, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, can't resist doing some facts and figurings. And I'll share them with you and you know, take this for what it's worth. He guesses that maybe over the course of all human history, there will have been 100 billion people. All right, well, why not? Good a guess as any. 100 billion people. And then he guesses that 20% of them will be saved. It's just a guess. Why not? Assign any number you want. He says 20% of them are saved. And then he calculates that each person uh, has their own little place of this city. And so he did all the calculations. You'd have your own block, your own cube, 75 acres square in the New Jerusalem. There's plenty of room in the New Jerusalem, folks. We don't have to worry about it getting too filled up. Let's bring more and more there with us. Now, if you go on here in verse 18, it's the beauty of its structure. And the construction of its wall of the city was, excuse me, and the construction of its wall was of jasper. And the city was pure gold, like clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Now, friends, we we read all this and we, we say, man, this is amazing. Look at the foundations. Look at the gates. Each gate made out of one pearl. You say, man, I'd like to see that oyster, wouldn't you? Good heavens. I mean, that's an oyster. You give them forth a pearl that big. Now, friends, I, I think all of this is literal to the best of John's ability. He's describing for us the realities of another world. And I think he's trying to give us a brief glimpse of what he saw, but we can't even begin to see it in fullness until we see it with our own eyes. But it's precious, it's valuable. It sure turns the the values of this world on end, right? You think of a man who scrapes and saves and thinks he's going to get something and somehow he figures out a way to take some gold with him to heaven and he finally gets to heaven and he goes, here it is, it's gold. And they go, well, what'd you bring that for? We use that for asphalt up here, mister. We paved the streets with that. Friends, the symbolism, the idea here isn't to give the impression of wealth and luxury, but to point to the glory and the holiness of God. And friends, if the if the dimensions and the descriptions of all this seems confusing or impossible, I want you to keep two things in mind. First of all, 
Even if we can't work out all the details, the ideas are clear enough. Glory, beauty, splendor. Second, we need to understand that this is the city, as Hebrews 11.10 says, whose architect and maker is God. He built it. Now, I would expect it to be beyond my comprehension, don't you? Good heavens, I look at a set of, of blueprints drawn up by architect on earth. I can't make heads or tails of them. How am I going to figure out what God draws out? No, I expect it to be beyond me. Look how glorious it is. Verse 22. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb is its light. No temple. Now, what's interesting about this is in the ancient world, it was unthinkable to have a great city without many different temples. It's like saying today, I saw a great city, but there wasn't any bank in it. Or I saw a great city, but no shopping mall in it. This city is marked by the fact that there is no temple in it. Oh, let me take that back. There is a temple, but it's not a building. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The temple isn't removed, it's expanded. Everything and every place is holy. Every place is the dwelling place of God. Friends, before Jesus, the temple was a prophecy, looking forward to Christ. In the Christian era, we're his temple. In the millennium, the temple will be a memorial, but here, the temple is everywhere. No temple needed, not as a building, and no need of the sun or the moon. You know what this reminds me of? The fact that heaven will be a place of pure worship. You know, our worship on this earth, even at its best, even at its most amazing, is tinged with impurity. You know why? Because we need to use uh, created things to lead us in worship. Created things like people, created things like sound systems, created things like guitars, and created things. And there's always the danger of the creation obscuring the creator. Friends, no more distractions in heaven. Those things are a non-issue. Our focus will totally be on the person we worship, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. No more confusion between creation and creator. In heaven, none of our joy, none of our, the beauty we see, none of the knowledge we have, none of it will be based on created things. It'll all come right from the creator. Friends, I want you to understand, by faith, you can have some of that in your life right now. You know, you can decide to trust in God so completely right now that your joy is from the creator, not from created things. That what you consider beautiful is from the Creator, not from created things. That your source of knowledge is based in Jesus and not in anything created. Don't you love that last line of verse 23? The Lamb is its light. He lights up the new Jerusalem. 
Light speaks of joy because in the scriptures, light and joy go together. Light speaks of beauty because without light, there is no beauty. Light speaks of knowledge. And in heaven, we're all going to know him as he knows us. And finally here, verse 24. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut all day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by, by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What about these kings of the earth? Who are they? This is a difficult place to understand in the book of Revelation. And different commentators have different suggestions. Some commentators say that uh, when the millennium was all finished and God did battle against those rebels, that not all of them perished. And these are survivors who go over from the millennium into the eternal state. I don't know. I think perhaps this is just a mystery. We don't know exactly what it means. But friends, don't you see this? It says that, verse 27, "...shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or lie." but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, does this mean that these kind of people will threaten the city? There's going to be a mob outside the city ready to get in of these kind of people? No. No. All sinners and death have been cast into the lake of fire by this point. We saw that back in Revelation chapter 20. You know why God put this in here? To warn us who read it now that the only way to be ready for this reality now is by getting your life right with Jesus Christ today. Decide you're not going to be one of these people now, and then you'll get to enjoy this heavenly reality then. If you wait to find out till later, it may be too late. Friends, don't you see this glorious thing in front of us? This glorious heaven? The great thing about it is God says, I want you to enjoy some of it right now. Some of it right now. That says, you can live with me. You can dwell with me. I wonder, my friend, if you really know the richness of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Think in your mind, maybe you knew it a lot better than you used to. The sweetness of communion, when you really felt like Jesus was your best friend. Friends, let me clue you in on something. If you're not as close in your friendship with Jesus as you once were, guess who moved? It wasn't the Lord. He says, come on back. Let's be friends closer than ever. I want that. And you want it too, don't you? So let's pray and ask the Lord to do it. Father, we can't read this without praise and and an exaltation rising in our hearts towards you. How glorious it is, Lord, your beauty, your power, the promise that you have for us in heaven. But Lord, we don't want to wait till heaven to know that we're your people. We don't want to wait till heaven to know that you're our God. We don't want to wait till heaven to know that you live with us. So Father, we come before you now in Jesus' name. We say that you Perform in our lives what you say in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, that you've seated us with Christ in heavenly places right now. Help us to live our lives, Lord, with this mindset. We're not afraid, Lord, 
of being so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. No, Lord, we believe that if we're genuinely heavenly minded, that we'll be of the greatest earthly good. Work this in our lives, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.